Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. Today we celebrate National Cookbook Month by trying our hand at two recipes new to each of us, a Victoria sponge for me and Valencia orange cake for Andrea. We'll also share some of our listeners' favorite cookbooks, and Andrea will review Odalenghi's new book, Sweet. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, are you much of a bread baker? Oh, yeah. I love making homemade bread. Well, I love making homemade bread. My favorite recipe is the cast iron no-knead bread. So that's when you um, make your dough and let it sit for 18 to 24 hours and then just sort of gently form it into a shape and pop it into your cast iron Dutch oven and cook it in the oven. And it gets a really nice crispy crust. So I've been making that for a couple of years, and I recently wanted to make it using a sourdough starter. So I had ordered a sourdough starter from uh, King Arthur Flour, and I was doing okay on on making it. It wasn't great. It was turning out okay because I was just using my same no-need recipe I'd always use and just throwing in some sourdough starter and not making any other adjustments. Um, anyway, I accidentally killed my starter. I, oh, I went... Oh, so sad. I'm so sorry for your loss. It was, it, was a sad, it was a sad moment. I went on a trip and I didn't feed it and I forgot it in the in the back of my um, refrigerator. So I put a post out on Facebook asking if anyone had some to share. And I had such a special offer come through. My friend Jill gave me some of her sourdough starter. It is from 1925. Wait. Um, I know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's been through four generations of uh, her partner's family, and I think it started in Spain. And she was saying, you know, she's had sourdough muffins from this one relative and sourdough bread from this other relative and sourdough pancakes from this other relative. So I just felt so special that she shared that with me. And I got home and I fed it and I've been taking care of it. And I looked up on the New York Times and I found an actual sourdough no-need recipe. So I've been making a recipe and following it faithfully and it's turning out so good. And I'm just loving now that fall is here and it's cold. I don't mind having my oven on for, you know, two hours at 500 degrees. (laughs) And it's it's just been really fun. I love this. So you are working with, I mean, it's nearly 200 years old or 100 years old. It's it's getting yeah. right up there. And it's international. And I know that people who are really into the sourdough, you know, it, it depends on on where you are. So I think that, that the flavor is very unique. Is, do I have that right? Based on I think you're, where yeah, you're keeping it? I think you're right because, um, you know, when I use it, every time before I use it, I pull it out about four hours ahead of time. I throw a half a cup away and then I feed it with some water and some flour. And certainly the water here at my house is from a well. So that's kind of unique to our area. And then, you know, my understanding is with the flour, usually your flour is kind of local. And then it's just picking up from 
the stuff in your house, you know, the, right, the, right. the bacteria and the yeast floating in the air. In fact, the second time I used it, I put it out on the counter and I um, forgot about it. And I came back to the house, I think like eight hours later, and it had expanded all the way over the top of the glass jar. It was running down the side of the glass jar onto the counter into the sink. So it- The um, sourdough that ate Olympia. (laughs) (laughs) I was worried. I was worried at first. I thought, oh no, I hope I haven't killed another one. But actually it was doing just fine. I was able to scrape it all together and um, use it. And it's just, it's so much fun. I love cooking with living things. It's just really fun. And, you know, you have also posted, I believe you posted that recipe about the cast iron bread um, to the Facebook page. So if people want to scroll backward, I think it is there. You had done it in response to listener Carrie, I think, who was looking for an easy bread recipe. So, um, yeah. Well, I wanted to just briefly talk, since it is still National Apple Month in the U.S. and still certainly cooking with lots of apples here in England as well, we had introduced a few episodes ago at the end of September, actually, during our Packable Snacks Month, we had introduced those apple pie bars, but we didn't get a chance to review them because September only had four weeks. But I just wanted to tell you guys, since it it, it tied in nicely with the apple theme that's still going on um, here in fall festival month, they are really good. And I I really um, encourage you to take the time if you're looking for a packable, portable uh, snack or breakfast. They're essentially just a really nice hearty oatmeal cookie with big chunks of apple. Uh, There's some coconut oil. There's, of course, in my case, a little additional wheat germ and (laughs) oatmeal. Uh, I thought they were just really moist. really nice. There's no leavening, so they were fairly dense. I honestly did not feel too guilty about having them for breakfast. Uh, So that's always nice. And just, you know, packable, portable. So if you still have some apples lying around, want to give those a try, you know, just just don't feel that you're uh, confined to only making those in September, of course. You can bring them on into into Apple Apple month here in October. Well, and I just love a something that's portable, especially in the morning. I usually do make a breakfast, but there's days when I just have to get out of the house as quickly as I can. And sometimes I'm eating in the car. So I love having something that's good and I can eat quickly and uh, doesn't need a a knife and a fork and a plate. Yeah, not crumbly, not messy. So really good for for on-the-go mornings. Absolutely. Well, thanks for sharing that one with us. Let's go ahead and turn our eyes toward the pumpkin cake donuts from King Arthur Flower. We introduced these last week in episode 47. And Stefan, how did yours turn out? I love pumpkin. I love donuts. What's not to love here? I have to tell you, uh, (laughs) these were a big hit in my house. And I'm trying to think, Andrea, I believe, I somehow know that pumpkin is one of the things that is, one of the crops that is indigenous to North America. I don't know how I know this, so I I may be really off base here. But the funniest thing about making these, I ordered canned pumpkin through my grocery order that arrives um, every week. And they, of course, the only pumpkin I've ever had in a can is Libby's pumpkin, right? I mean, I had no idea there could even be another a brand. But there is. It's called the Better Baker, and it's really cute. I'm going to post a picture, um, the little can. But what's hysterical is the pumpkin is still coming from the U.S. So they're oh. importing the pumpkin. And, you know, huh. it, it was absolutely the same, same taste, same texture, absolutely everything there. So okay. um, oh, that was just kind of a funny little quirk about about making these for me. 
Uh, you know, I have my mini donut pan, so I went ahead and used that. We had talked about um, you can do a, a regular size donut pan. You could do these in muffin form. That's another way the recipe has an alternative if you don't have one of those muffin pans, don't want to go get one. I had no problem whatsoever. That little workhorse is just great. Um, I just piped in the batter, and then I did about 10 minutes. So I think the regular muffins um, I did for 18 minutes in my oven. They were very moist. They were very pumpkin-y. I'm not sure I would call them donut-y, but I really liked them, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my only question to you, Andrea, um, when the donuts were still warm, you're shaking them in a bag with the cinnamon sugar. And I think that's really crucial to do that while it's still warm or it won't stick. But here's something kind of mysterious that happened to me. We didn't somehow managed to eat them all on the first day. And when I went back in the morning, that sugar had all, I guess, melted, dissolved. Oh, uh-huh. It had disappeared. The The oh. actual visual <laughs> sugar was still there, but no longer no longer visible. And it just was a little um, unpleasant. It was kind yeah. of uh, wet almost. So I just wondered if, if you knew what was going on there, the chemistry, or that happened to you also. Uh, it didn't affect the taste, but it did kind of affect the texture. And yeah, uh, yeah. so well, I don't know what that had, was about. Yeah, we had kind of a similar experience with these. I liked making this recipe. Uh, this is only the second time I've made donuts. Uh, the first time I did it back at my friend's house in California. And this was sort of a, a similar uh, experience. I like it because it's basically a one bowl recipe. And so you beat together oil, eggs, sugar, pumpkin, the spices, the salt, the baking powder, and then you add your flour in. I made a little goof on the spices. Um, it's supposed to be, uh, uh, well, it said either pumpkin pie spice or three quarter teaspoon ground cinnamon plus a quarter teaspoon nutmeg and ginger. And I accidentally grabbed the nutmeg and did the three quarter teaspoon of nutmeg. And so I thought, oh, I wonder if this is going to be too nutmeggy. But I did not notice it at all in the finished product okay, or you, I t- tasted you the not, raw batter too. You were not veering into nutmeg toxicity then. No. As we know. <laughs> Just now the I, third time we've brought this up. So I know. <laughs> Obsessed with our nutmeg toxicity. So three quarters teaspoon of nutmeg. I I, um, also used the mini donut pan. I I mentioned when you introduced this that I didn't have one. I went to Goodwill. They didn't have any. And so I decided, I don't know about you, but I found whenever you need to uh, buy somewhat of an unusual baking supplies or baking equipment, the best prices are at the places like Home Goods or TJ Maxx or Marshalls or Ross. Now, you can never guarantee that you're going to find the item, but uh, if you do find it, it's usually much cheaper than, you know, at a a regular cooking store or kitchen store. Right, I went to Home Goods and sure enough, they uh, had donut pans, but they only had the minis and they only had one. So that's what I got. But, you know, it was only $3.99. So I'm not going to complain. Can't beat it. And I did the same as you. I, I filled it into the Ziploc bag and piped it into the minis. It made 36 uh, for me, which was kind of nice. Um, the first two batches I let cool a little bit on a wire rack, and then I had the same feeling as you. I thought, oh, if we're going to toss them in this cinnamon sugar, they still need to be a little bit warm. So while they were, um, I would say just a tiny little bit warm, I threw them into a Ziploc with the cinnamon sugar, and it did seem like the sugar was sticking. I tried a few. They were really good. 
And then the last batch came out of the oven and I had to run to meet someone and I was bringing the donuts to this thing that I was going to. So I threw that last batch into the Ziploc bag, gave it a shake. I didn't close the bag because I thought, well, those are still pretty hot. Um, But when I got to my destination and I pulled the donuts out and I put them on the counter and it was at an office. So I just said, hey, everyone, here's some donuts if you guys want them. I reached in to grab one and two words came to mind. They're two of my least favorite words in the universe. One is moist and the other is clammy. (laughs) And I just thought, oh, this is kind of gross. So I ate it. It didn't – you could not tell taste-wise anything different, but that that sort of wet texture. So I just have to say there's like – it seems like there's this fine line between they need to still be warm enough for the cinnamon sugar to stick, but they can't be so warm that I think I experienced what you did, that the sugar kind of melts and then it gets sort of this sticky, clammy – coating on it, which was unpleasant. Yeah, clammy and moist, not good words to describe pumpkin cake donuts. So I I guess that exactly, maybe you just need to eat the whole batch in one go, and then you've solved your problem. (laughs) That's the easy way to solve it. Otherwise, I don't know, you know, maybe you would just, I think they would be, they would be still pretty tasty without any sugar cinnamon, but it is just a really nice, visually, the ones that it sticks to, it's beautiful. And it has that nice little crunch and just that great flavor that goes with pumpkin so well of the cinnamon and sugar. So I would, I'd be sorry if someone decided not to do it. On the other hand, the kind of day later issue or still too warm issue is is not very pleasant. So no. um, yeah, I know. Yeah. And I, um, I did want to point out too that on the King Arthur website, they have this same recipe in gluten-free form. Yep. So they substitute the regular flour with their gluten-free flour. You could use any gluten-free flour, I'm sure. And they increase the baking time to 20 minutes. So if you're trying to do gluten-free, this is a good recipe for you as well. And I um, did underbake mine since I was in the mini pan. So for my first batch, the recommended time is 15 to 18 minutes, and I did 12 minutes, and I thought they were a little underbaked. So for my second batch I and my third batch, I did the 15 minutes, and I liked those better. And I did taste them without the cinnamon sugar because you know me and my cinnamon aversion. It's not my favorite thing. <laughs> and I thought they were really just as good without okay. sugar. Um, but I think the cinnamon yeah. sugar added a nice crunch. I thought it was, mm-hmm. yes, you know, it was more like a texture thing. It, I don't feel like it needed the additional sweetness, but I, I liked that texture and it was prettier. And visually it was really nice too. Yeah. I'm not a big like dunker, but I, as I was eating them, I thought this might be really good, like dunked in hot cocoa. Anyway, oh. I may have to try that, but, yes. uh, but experimenting. Yes. Yeah, and so then, listeners, I am working with a convection or fan oven, as they call it here in England. So my minis were were at, um, let's see, 180 fan, I believe, and that was just for 10 minutes in my mini donut. So um, That's 180 Celsius. Yes, indeed. Yes, okay. yes 180 right. Celsius. Yeah. Yes, because uh, mine were mine were the 350, the standard 350. Right, so. right. And then the fan, the, the convection just does speed up the time. And I'm, I'm okay. kind of getting my, my sea legs there. So that feels good. Too. <laughs> your sea legs with your oven. I love that. Yeah, yeah. My oven legs. So. Yes. <laughs> well, we are going to switch gears. And in honor of National Cookbook Month, Uh, October is just so chock full of celebrations. Andrea and I have each picked a recipe from a cookbook that we have not tried before. And Andrea, I am going to cook an English, another English tea time favorite from yet another English 
book that you presciently gave me, and it's called <laughs> it's called a Victoria Sponge, which is a sponge cake uh, cut in half um, and then sandwiched with uh, raspberry, in this case, jam. And you can serve that with cream in the middle as well or cream on top. So uh, this is a very, very famous English dessert served at tea time served at um, just regular dessert time in a coffee shop, in a, in a bakery. And it is famous because Queen Victoria herself, this was one of her very, very favorite things to have with her afternoon tea. And she gets credit for starting kind of that, that English ritual of afternoon tea. So I've eaten this before, but never made it. And that's going to be my challenge. My cookbook is called Lucy's Bakes, and it is full of both sweet and savory and then it has this nice feature where she has uh, thrown it out to her online folks, and then they've they've weighed in, they've offered their own variations, and then she's compiled it into this cookbook. So it's it's fun to see kind of in a cookbook form what you might see on like a cooking blog or or things like that. So this is a first for me. Yeah, yeah. So that will be up on uh, our website. Uh, link to that preheated podcast dot com. And Andrea, what have you chosen for your challenge? Well, I am choosing a Valencia orange cake, and it comes from a cookbook called The Italian Baker by Melissa Forti. And, um, you know, the the reason I picked this particular cookbook, one of the ways that I like to – well, there's two ways I like to buy cookbooks. One is if it's someone that I already follow online or their TV show or I've cooked from them, and then if I hear they're getting a cookbook, then I'm, I'm pretty much guaranteed I'm going to get it. So like, for example, Smitten Kitchen, Deb Perlman, she's coming out with a cookbook, I think, at the middle or end of October. I mean, I already know I'm going to buy that cookbook. No yes, questions right. asked. Yes. Um but the other thing that I like to do is go to the library, and my library has just some awesome cookbooks. And what I'll do is I'll pick a cookbook, and I'll take it home. And what I usually try to do is read the introduction and, you know, if there's, like, any special techniques that the author really likes. And then I'll try to pick three recipes from the cookbook. So um, the day that I brought home this cookbook, The Italian Baker, I also brought home, like, six other cookbooks. And so I immediately got a little overwhelmed about which one am I going to do? But when I started looking at her book, I just really liked it um, because she takes a lot of things that are – you know, old timey or perennial favorites, you know, like carrot cake or chocolate cake or cheesecake and kind of gives it an Italian makeover. And then nice. every cake and cookie has a story with it and talks about her travels and her love of her Italian heritage and, you know, how she found uh, Italians would, you know, how do Italians make a cheesecake and how is that different from, you know, an English cheesecake or a United States cheesecake. So I um, found the Valencia orange cake to be something I think I can tackle. It's one layer. And you know, I'm still very intimidated by cakes and especially layers. So it's one layer and it doesn't have frosting. And um, bonus, it's gluten free. But you know, again, it's just naturally gluten free. It, it okay. um, you know, it has uh, almond flour instead of regular flour. So nice. Yes, I'm very excited. I don't know where I'm going to get Valencia oranges. I'm not even sure if I know what a Valencia orange is. I go to Spain, right? Yes. I, that's what I was thinking. Um, that's probably not going to happen. And then I was thinking, <laughs> within the a, next uh, week? What? What? I know. Isn't there kind of a little commercial jingle that's like, 100% Valencia? Does oh. that ring a bell? 
<laughs> if there's not, there should be. You need I to call the I good think... people of Valencia and offer your services as a jingle yeah. singer. Um, listeners, if you guys know what I'm talking about, and I apologize, uh, I am not a singer. So that is can probably going to be Can you sing it again? A... Nope. Nope. It's bad enough that I did it and, and it's recorded. But if you know what I'm talking about, as soon as I saw Valencia, I was like, that little jingle got stuck in my head. It must be oh an orange God. juice commercial, but I, I don't no know. Idea. I have no idea. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so I'm going to uh, well, see. Obviously, if I can't find Valencia oranges. I'm just going to see what oranges I can get. But I'm very excited about it. Yeah. And it's just by coincidence that we both picked a cake. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, when I hear the word challenge, cake comes to my mind because it is still a challenge for me. I'm not super comfortable making cake shut. Um, oh so. my gosh, I forgot like the most reason why this Victoria sponge is the challenge. There's no measurements. It's all by oh. weight. It's, <laughs> oh it's I was so, I, I just, <laughs> it, it's all by weight. And so, yeah, oh my gosh, I, of course, I'm thinking to myself like, well, I, I make cakes a lot as you're saying that. That's not such a challenge for me. I'm like, why did I pick this one? Oh my gosh, sorry, everyone. Oh. Okay, so, so here's how you do this. You, it takes um, four eggs, and you weigh the eggs in the shell, in my kitchen scale. Then you note how much that weighs. Then you do an equal amount of uh, butter and flour and sugar, and and then half amount of something else. Um, I don't have it right in front of me right now. And so there's no there's no actual like cup measures or anything like that. And so it's kind of this. I've never done a recipe like this before. It is I am entirely so excited new. about this because yes. it's a it's a proportion thing. It's a, so it's going to say let's say your eggs weigh out to whatever you know 150 grams. Then it's going to be 150 grams of flour and 150 grams of whatever, or you know some proportion thereof. Exactly. So I just grabbed it. So oh. it's so it's the same amount of sugar and flour and half as much butter and margarine. And she says it's really really important to use half butter, half margarine. So once again, oh. I'll be headed out for my hydrogenated fats. <laughs> well, apparently Queen Victoria was a thrifty woman. And, you know, although she probably had access to the freshest butter in the kingdom, she uh, decided to margarine you know, it up a little margarine bit. Margarine it up a little bit. So that is why that is my challenge. I am okay. only weighing. I am not really measuring. So I am oh super excited for you. I cannot, I am waiting a, with bated breath to hear how this one turns out. So okay. That's okay. Gonna be it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. Can I hear that jingle again though? I, I still have it in my A hundred percent Valencia. Yes. Um, I am going to move on to Ota, Ota Lenghi's sweet cookbook. Oh, yeah. And this is on your shelves now. It came out on October 3rd, so you'll be seeing it in your bookstores. It's got a beautiful picture on the cover um, involving figs, which I think are just some of the most gorgeous fruit in the world to be photographed. I This book falls in that first category of cookbooks that I talked about. I knew I loved his cookbooks, and when I heard he was coming out with a dessert cookbook, it's like, okay, this is a no-brainer. I know I'm going to buy this. And um, I think for those of you who like to gift cookbooks to people, you might want to make a little note that this would be a lovely gift to give someone for the holidays who likes to bake. Um, a couple of caveats. It, it, as with his other cookbooks, uh, Yotam Odalenghi has other cookbooks like Jerusalem and Plenty. Many of the recipes are not easy. They are not a weeknight recipe, and um, they might involve some odd ingredients or spices. And so um, definitely a good place to turn to for a special occasion baking. Um, 
He wrote the book along with Helen Goh, who I'm guessing is, you know, his pastry chef. And um, I really liked, you know, I was mentioning I always read the introductions. I really liked in the beginning, they uh, they start out with a chapter called The Sugar Manifesto. And they said they actually thought about calling the book Sugar um, because – what thing? One thing that really annoys them is how the public enemy number one in terms of food is always changing. So mm-hmm. it used to be fat, and then it was carbs, and you know now it's sugar. Everyone's like, no sugar, no sugar. And their response is, sugar is fine as long as it's not hidden. You know what? What they think is bad is is hidden sugars, right? Like when you go to eat ketchup and you find that there's you know right. Right. quarter cup of sugar in your ketchup, but. They said there is nothing wrong with treats or cakes or cookies, which you know are made sh- made with sugar, as long as you enjoy them and acknowledge that they are treats. You know, they're not your um, – you don't need your daily sugar requirement. So I really liked that. Yeah. Um, I liked their philosophy that they were not going to try and make anything gluten-free, but if it happened naturally, then they would include it, and, and it was good and it met their criteria, then they would include it. So there are 20 gluten-free recipes in there. They – they also talk about their philosophy that you should pick a recipe and bake it over and over and over again. And I found this really interesting. Um, they talked about the paradox between recipes that are in some ways incredibly overly precise, you know, where it'll be like, you know, seven eighths a cup measure of this and add this first and this last. And then they'll be followed by these vague instructions about like bake until done or, you know, stir until smooth, heat until hot, you know. Um, And I thought, you know, that was so interesting, too. I thought, given our listeners' comments on our Facebook group, Preheated, about their personality styles, and especially for those people who are upholders and like to follow the rules, I imagine that, you know, that can be a little bit frustrating. Like, if you like precise instructions and you're willing to follow them, and all of a sudden you're given this vague instruction, it's kind of like, well, what should I do? And there and that's why they said you should bake the same recipe over and over again because you know they said for example they will have things in there like you know half a cup corn syrup and then in parentheses they'll put or alternative or you know and so they said so what we mean by that is maybe you don't have any corn syrup on hand and you're going to have to use date syrup you have no idea how it's going to turn out so just try that you know bake it the first time with your corn syrup bake it the second time with your date syrup see which one you like better you know continue to make those changes continue to do 15 minutes on the first time do 18 minutes on the second time and so i just thought that was kind of a really interesting philosophy so i i i like the way they talked about their baking I love that. Um, they had uh, a really interesting distinction that is important for us since I live in the U.S. and you are a recent um, resident of the U.K. They had a little section on what is the difference between a cookie and a biscuit. And and in their opinion, it's not just American versus British. They think there is a true difference. And they they came down with this phrase, which I love, cookies bend, biscuits snap. Uh, I think I've heard that maybe from maybe there's been a lot of press here about this cookbook um, because he's yeah right and and that sounds really familiar I may have read that in one of the reviews here or something too but so Mm -hmm. I I loved that I thought that was a good little shorthand Um, they added cookies tend to be sweet and chunky biscuits tend to be savory and crisp and you know so it just kind of fleshes that whole thing out. Um, 
Another thing they did, which I really enjoyed, remember back a couple of episodes ago, we talked about how frustrating it can be in a recipe that says semi-sweet or bittersweet or dark. And these days you have so many alternatives, you don't really know what you're supposed to do. They actually told you. So, So they would say in the recipe, dark chocolate chips, pick between 60 and 70% cocoa or, you know, um, chocolate or semi-sweet or milk. And then they would give you the cocoa range. So I really enjoyed that. Um, There are multiple chapters. So there was a chapter on cookies, a chapter on mini cakes, a chapter on cakes, um, a chapter on tarts and pies, a chapter on desserts, which had 20 desserts in them. 13 of them had fruit, five had booze. So you can kind of (laughs) see what they like. And I, as you can imagine, I like that. A chapter on confectionery. And then finally, and this is where I got so excited for you, Stefan, there's a whole chapter on cheesecake. Oh. So I thought to myself, this is perfect. They, these people are based in London, where yeah. Stefan is. There's a whole chapter on cheesecake, yes. and I can't wait to get to that chapter because clearly they're going to discuss what Stefan's been experiencing, this whole challenge that she can't find, you know, good old block-style Philadelphia cream cheese. The struggle so I is get real. The, the struggle <laughs> is real. So I get to the cheesecake chapter, and I start reading, and in the first recipe, it just is one of the line items nestled among, you know, sugar and graham crackers. It was like eight ounces or however many grams cream cheese. I thought, okay, weird. So then I get to the next recipe, same thing. No commentary on the cream cheese. So I was like, what is going on here? Luckily, I got to the end of the book and there's a whole ingredient section and there was an entire page devoted to cream cheese. And so st- you are not crazy. Okay. They, they said there... <laughs> Cream cheese is very different in the UK than it is in the United States. Um, In the United States, it is harder and more block style. In the UK, it is softer and more spreadable. The difference is the water content. And so the one in the UK has a higher water content. And so it said, you know, and this comes back to that vague instructions versus precise. It was like, so you may need to adjust according to which oh. type of cream cheese you use. You know, you may you may need to stir it a little bit longer if you're trying to make it smooth or, you know, but it didn't say you should substitute in terms of, um, you know, weight or volume or anything. It just said you might need to adjust like how you're using it. You know, you're, like you're whipping it. Obviously, the one that's harder might take a little bit longer to whip than the one that's creamier and softer. Okay. Well, I will probably take a look for the UK uh, version. Sometimes they are a little different. And I will report back and see if there's any differences in those recipes here in Britain. Please do. Okay. Okay. So that was my oh, fun, fun time with sweet. I, I did just love it. I um I have some recipes marked down that I'm going to make from it. Um, banana cakes with rum caramel. I thought that sounded fabulous. Um, lemon and semolina syrup cakes actually sounded a lot to me like our lemon drizzle cake. Yes. But it uses um, semolina flour and almond meal. And so they said it added sort of a marzipan flavor. Um, they, de- they did have some cakes that sounded bizarre and weird to me. They were made with root vegetables, (laughs) Um, beet, ginger, and sour cream. 
Uh, I'm going to skip that one. Uh, They have one that they call the world's easiest cake, the take-home chocolate cake. And so that's first on my list. Um, And this is a good example of how they'll take a recipe and talk about how you can dress it up or dress it down. So, you know, under the take-home chocolate cake, world's easiest cake, that's it. There's the recipe. There's your cake. But then they have optional chocolate ganache, which you can pour on top. And then optional espresso cinnamon mascarpone cream, which you can put on top. So, you know, they'll give you a base recipe and then tell you, you can just serve it plain and that's fine, or you can fancy it up and here's how you do that. Nice. Well, thank you for doing the heavy lifting of reviewing Otolenghi's oh, yes. Sweet. I think National Cookbook Month comes at a really good time of year because lots of new releases are happening and you can start thinking about, you know, your holiday wish list is coming up for you and I. We both have birthdays mm. coming up. So, yeah, thank you for taking a look at that. Some other cookbooks that folks might be interested in, we put out a call to our Facebook uh, community on uh, just preheated Facebook community, and we said, what is a cookbook that you just can't live without? And we got some great responses. You know, Andrea, looking over this list that was online, I was very familiar with, with several of them. I know we had talked uh, last episode or episode before about um, Natalie Dupree's Matter of Taste. That was uh, listener Ingrid had had suggested that one. Um, Ingrid also had what what might have been the funniest entry, uh, a book that I'm not familiar with, but may need to be. It's called The Appendix to the I Hate to Cook book by Peg Bracken. And the... Here's an example of what you can find in this cookbook. Quote, light a cigarette and stare sullenly at the sink while the casserole cooks. So (laughs) if you've just kind of had one of those days, this may be the cookbook for you. Um, Let's see. Antone in um, Furcrest, Washington, loves the Betty Crocker cookie cookbook. Of course, you and Anne Lundholm talked about that very cookbook back when you interviewed her in like episode four or five. And that's one that I also have. It's really great. Uh, Heather from Bothell, Washington, she loves the 70s version of the Betty Crocker cookbook. That's also one that I have and is just such a comprehensive kind of workhorse cookbook. Uh, and Monica I love that loves- people submit their versions, too. It's not just the Betty Crocker book cookbook, but it's the year. It's the particular edition that they use that they're so attached to. I think that's so great. Yeah, absolutely. So Whitney had said The Joy of Cooking, and then listener Andrew said, which version? I like the 1975. And she said, well, I'm using the one from the late 80s. And that's really true. A book like that that's been in circulation for so long, mm-hmm. there are updates and, and differences. Oh, and so yeah. you can you can really have a, a vast um, vast difference between the books. Uh, Monica had one. Andrea, I am not familiar with this one. It's called Learning to Cook by Marion Cunningham. And so I'm going to need to take a look Look there. I uh, have not heard of of that one. But again, I've sounds like Marion Cunningham. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She, okay. Her name is familiar to me, but I haven't read that cookbook now. Uh, then, you know, many people agreed. Uh, Carolyn and Andrew both brought up How to Cook Everything by Mark Bittman. That's, I know, one of your favorites also. Um, Carolyn also suggested The Woman's Day Cookbook. Sounds like another comprehensive cookbook. Uh, let's see. Lauren from Columbus, Ohio. Uh, she loves the America's Test Kitchen family cookbook. I have many America's Test Kitchen. They are always so good, so reliable. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Who else do we have here? Um, Carla from Iowa, Taste of Home Compendium. Judy and Betty, um, Judy's from Sioux City, Iowa, and Betty is from New Orleans, and they both suggested a church cookbook or a um, community cookbook. You and I have talked kind of a lot about those in the past. Right. Betty loves the River Road, and Judy just said kind of any and all church cookbooks. I love them and lots of good stuff. 
And then finally, uh, Ramona from Lee's Summit, Missouri. Lee's Summit, yay, I've been there. Um, she loves this Amish and slash Mennonite cookbook called More With Less. And, you know, I thought I we should have talked to Ramona about one. these Amish apple dumplings. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would love, would love to know. So thank you, everyone, who took some time to let us know your favorites. And I'm really intrigued and, uh, you know, nice to see some that I know and love. But then also nice to get some new titles because – I'm like you, Andrea. There's almost no section I love more at the library than the cookbook section. And and they're big and heavy, and I'm, like, staggering out the door with them. But it's a great way to test them out and then see if you, you know, truly want to commit to to it. Yes. So, yes. Yeah, yeah, we'd love to hear, listeners, any any new ones um, that are being published now, too. I also – I should have added that's the, my third category of cookbook is recommendations from friends who say, oh, my gosh, I just got this, and it's so good. You have to get it. So or we'd love you, to hear about Or if they make that. something for you and you say, where's this from? And then they say, oh, <gasps> oh it's yeah. from the you know, Pasta & Co. Yes. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get to the dishes. Next week, we'll pay tribute to National Caramel Month with a homemade caramel sauce. Is it worth the time and effort? We'll also check in with our cookbook challenges, and we'll chat with women on both sides of the pond about setting the perfect tea time table. Remember, you can find us and our featured recipes on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, on Facebook and Pinterest, and download us on Google and Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you subscribed to the show and gave us a five-star review, both of which will help others find us. Until next time, thanks for listening and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, performed, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stephen Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.